Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. And welcome to Crime and Spirits, your new favorite true crime and cocktail podcast. I'm your host, Bree. And I'm your other host, Suze. We're best friends who are obsessed with true crime, and we love a good-themed cocktail. So, we took our two favorite things and turned them into a podcast. Every Sunday, we release a new episode covering a different case or topic of interest. I'm the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits, so every time we get together, I mix up a drink that ties into the episode in some way, shape, or form, and then I teach you how to make one for yourself. That way, you can sip right along with us. We like to keep things conversational around here, so expect some tangents on occasion, as well as some cursing here and there. Think of us as a cross between Dateline and Girls' Night. So, come hang out with us every week while we learn a little something new together. We love to chat with you about whatever, really, but mostly true crime. You better buckle up, Buttercup. And sip tight. Let's get on with the show. Woo! Hello and welcome back to Crime and Spirits. My name is Bree. And I'm Suze. Thanks so much for taking some time to tune in. As always, this is my favorite day of the week. I very much look forward to our time together and I appreciate you being here. Yes, me too. Same. I love it. I'm really excited about today's topic too. It's very interesting. Yeah. So we've got uh, something a little different kind of planned over the next few weeks. We're going to be diving headfirst into the land of cults. It's been a little while since we've done a good old fashioned deep dive and we're overdue. And I realized while preparing for this episode how much I really like doing these. So... Here we are. Here we are. This episode is going to be kind of an overview of cults. We're going to dig into the history a little bit, characteristics, definitions, examples, you know, that whole chestnut. Then next week, we're going to talk specifically about David Koresh and his ascent to becoming a prominent figure in the Branch Davidians. If that name doesn't ring a bell, perhaps you might be more familiar with the end of his story, which is the Waco siege slash massacre. Nobody is decided on what the actual name of the event is. I feel as though they're still arguing about it 30 years after the fact. So there is that. So we're going to argue that out on the third episode. So Mm -hmm. over the course of the next three weeks, it's going to be all about different cults, specific cults. And then this one really crazy event that was really scary but very interesting to break down it was one of the first things i remember being played almost in live time Mm, yeah (laughs) through the media Mm -hmm. so to me that's what sticks in my brain about it yeah specifically yeah after reef like refreshing myself with it i was like oh yeah like it all just felt really familiar right so our warning for this episode is just a little bit broad today is going to be more of just a general overview of what cults are and how we define them this will require some discussion about things like violence sexual assaults and or suicides we will not however be going into much detail so all in all Things shouldn't be so terrible, all things considered. <laughs> um, as a general rule, though, moving forward, just keep in mind that most of what we talk about on a weekly basis is sensitive in nature and is not suitable for all listeners. All right. So let's get to the fun part. These drinks look super amazing and they're very fall fun. I'm excited. Yeah. So we're talking about cults how does one make a cocktail to suit a cult a cult cocktail well, if you will 
The answer is you don't. <laughs> you don't even try. You so, don't even bother. Yes. Instead, I'm just going to go full on fall on y'all um, and embrace the season because it is one of the best seasons. I think the it best. Is. It very much is. Um, so we're going to lean on the use of apples, pumpkins, and any kind of fall related anything that I can get or find on the interwebs to offset mm. all of this madness we're going to be talking about. Watch so, out. Prepare to be festive, at least in the cocktail department. I like it. I like it. <laughs> um, this week, we're making a candle candy apple inspired cocktail. We are using some of my old school fave booze, um, Smirnoff vanilla vodka and fireball whiskey. Mm. We're going to mix it up with some spiced apple cider. So when I said we're going full on fall, I meant it. She was not like kidding. So back in the day, I used to be mildly obsessed with vanilla vodka and Diet Coke. I don't know why, but when I was hmm. 22, it was just like the best thing I'd ever tasted. I feel like Smirnoff vodkas in general was just the the drink choice of rowdy teenagers. I They advertised <laughs> them well. The sleek bottles that mm-hmm. all look the same, except for they were color coded. Well, and they're all different Vanilla is like a cream color. You mm-hmm. could anything. Three olives came in after the fact mm. with all their flavored vodkas, but some of theirs are weird. That's true. Give me some cherry, some vanilla, some apple, some basics here. You know, <laughs> don't need a lot. Right. The Smirnoff also just happened to be on sale this week at the store. So when I picked up the bottle off the shelf, all sorts of memories came flooding back. And <laughs> here we are now in possession of Smirnoff vanilla vodka. I like it. Um, we're also going to mix in that fireball whiskey, which was mm. another one of my old standbys. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never really mixed fireball into drinks while I've been out. Yeah. So mm. this is like a new thing for me. So I love Fireball. I do too. It's like palate cleansing. It, <laughs> it really is. So Brie, did you know that Fireball is actually a mix of Canadian whiskey, cinnamon flavoring, and sweeteners? I don't think I did. But bam, now you know. <laughs> According to the official Fireball website, the spirit was developed in Canada in the mid-1980s and oh. was not well known outside of Canada for a pretty long time. I do feel like it just it literally like fireballed itself onto it the scene. Came in like a wrecking ball. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> we got jokes over here too, people. Watch out. So in college, when we wanted something cinnamon flavored, we drank Goldschlager yep. because it had real gold flakes in it. Oh it my was God. like cinnamon syrup. I, we felt so warm and fancy I though. We, I was the fanciest. It was like the epitome of cool, right? It, it really was. Well, and then came Fireball. Mm. So Fireball was originally part of a line of flavored schnapps developed by Seagram in the mid 80s in Canada. According to the manufacturer's history, the product was originally a Canadian bartender's efforts to warm up from the Arctic blast up north up there. Hmm. So much like I did in college with Goldschlager. Yeah, I was just going to say we're doing. I can believe it. Fitting. I like the story. I'm Mm -hmm. digging it. So the Sazerac company purchased the rights from Seagram in 1989 and originally marketed Fireball as Dr. McGillicuddy's Firewater Whiskey. (laughs) Dr. McGillicuddy. Which I think they still make a root beer schnapps that's actually delicious. Huh. Yes. Root beer schnapps. So just so you know, it's not half bad. I don't know what you would put it in. Dr. Pepper? More root beer? IDK. <laughs> I just tried it on its own and it was not half bad. Root beer float maybe? Yeah. So when they renamed it Fireball, rebranded it, it literally just people went bananas mm-hmm. for it like buck wild. The company got smart. They started utilizing social media, bartenders, i.e. giving away free bottles and swag so that they can use and advertise the product and just basic 
word of mouth. And they did this all on a shoestring budget. They really didn't spend that much compared to some people. That's so interesting. Yeah. According to the website, Fireball is among the top selling whiskey related brands in the U.S. And it's also available in other countries now also. I believe it. They do sell it in like wine bag form with a tap on it. They also sell buckets of the airplane bottles. Like, oh, yeah. I've they seen sell those. candy canes full of it at Christmas time. Like it is. People are very passionate about love it. Fireball. I mean, I love so Fireball. good. So much sugar, so bad for you. But I mean, there are so good. If I have it in the freezer for too long, it gets like a little syrupy mm-hmm. for my liking, but still. Yes. Still wonderful. So now that we have all that information locked in our brains, mm-hmm. onto the cocktail itself. I'm calling it the cinnamon apple martini. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned, we're using fireball, duh. And the Smirnoff vanilla, duh. Um, you'll also want to pick up some apple cider. I wanted to go local, but everywhere in my general vicinity was sold out mm. of firm and cider. So that tracks. I purchased a spiced apple cider flavor from Aldi because honestly, it just sounded really good. And I mm. thought it would go well in the recipe. However, whatever brand or flavor you have on hand will work just mm. as well. <laughs> no judgments here. Um, I also picked up some caramel apple dip and made up some cinnamon sugar so we could rim our glass in caramel and cinnamon sugar. Not necessary, but it'll definitely just make it yummier, both presentation wise for your eyes and taste wise, in my opinion. It looks really good. Mm-hmm. It is pretty good. Um, I also grabbed a honey crisp apple to garnish our drink with just a little slice. Again, it's not necessary. It just looks pretty. <laughs> to mix up the drink itself, take your shaker tin and fill it with ice. While you're doing that, pop your martini glass in the freezer. This is our favorite trick to get the glass super duper frosty and chilled so it'll be ready for your cocktail. To your shaker tin, add one and a half ounces of the Smirnoff vanilla vodka half an ounce of fireball cinnamon whiskey, and two ounces of your apple cider. Shake it all up until it's nice and chilly. Set that to the side and prepare your glass. I just dipped it into the caramel and then dipped it right into the cinnamon sugar. And then I just strained the drink right into the glass. I popped that apple slice on the edge and bing, bang, boom. Oh, wow. It's good, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Tastes like a candy apple, but the caramel makes it like sweet. Er. I would definitely recommend the caramel. Mm-hmm. I think it adds a sweetness that cuts that really boozy taste yeah. a little bit. Because this is a strengthy Fire, cocktail. Well, and Fireball, I feel like it's hard. The taste is so distinct. Yes, absolutely. That it's going to, and it's very like pow in your face alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's going to come through any mixed drink. Really? The caramel with the cinnamon sugar really offsets it. Well, because I thought about maybe like an apple vodka or something like that. But I was like, I think we need the vanilla to sort of like Mm -hmm. even out that cinnamon. Yeah. Brings it brings up the sweetness factor. You have to with the fireball. Yeah. Or you can just shoot it. But I recommend mixing it into this martini. This is good. Try something. Yeah. Try something different. And we're going to need it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So as you're finishing up making up your drinks, we're just going to listen to a quick word from one of our Podmoth friends. So sip tight and we will be right back. Today, we bask in the light of mustachioed greatness. Hi, this is Daniel Segura, host of the Mustachioed Podcastio. You like mustaches? You like movies? You like sexy chicanos? Well, the Podcastio is the place for you. We are talking legendary mustaches from Charles Bronson to the Great Bird Reynolds to the OG Ice T. Find the Mustachioed Podcastio anywhere you listen to podcasts. That is M O U S T Ashioed Podcastio. 
So what is a cult? Oh, yes. What is a cult? Indeed. That is what we're here (laughs) to try and figure out today. We're going to start things off by digging into the literal definition. Then we'll discuss the many different types of cults as we know them today. We're going to wrap things up by looking at why people join cults in the first place and how you can recognize if a new group you've joined recently is, in fact, a cult. There was a whole website that was like, are you in a cult? And I was like, I don't know. Let's read up on how I would find that out. Am I? (laughs) Now, as is tradition with most languages, the word cult has taken on many different meanings over the years. That's just how languages work. Every single word is just a made up word. Mm -hmm. And I I find that super fascinating. So as of now, per the Merriam-Webster dictionary, this word has four definitions. One a religion regarded as unorthodox. Two, great devotion to a person, idea, object, movement, or work, such as a film or book. Three, a system of religious beliefs and ritual. And four, a formal religious veneration and or worship. Sounds about right. Yes. Checks out to what we we know. Now, the word cult descends from the Latin cultus, an ancient word for That encompasses the concepts of adoration, education, and cultivation. At first, it became a catch-all term for groups devoted to a specific subject. This could be something philosophical and religious, or maybe something more mundane and material. By the 19th century, the word evolved to mean an unorthodox group of zealous and eccentric believers. So already, really early on, we see like a switch to different. Mm Mm-hmm. I like unorthodox. I know. Eccentric believers. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so the definition of the word cult itself remains expansive, at least to a degree. While we often use this word synonymously with destructive movements and bizarre forms of belief, it can also refer to an ordinary group of people. For example, a movie might have a cult following, which means that it appeals to just a niche group of people It does not imply that the movie itself nor its following is nefarious in any way. Today, the word is widely used to describe a small group of people that is typically led by a charismatic and self-appointed leader who excessively controls its members and requires unwavering devotion to a set of beliefs and practices which are considered deviant, a.k.a. outside the norms of society. But how exactly did we get here? A man named Max Weber who died in 1920, just so you can kind of have a time reference for when his work was prevalent. He was an important sociologist and theorist in the academic study of cults. He was actually one of the first to theorize of charismatic authority, a concept which involves a type of organization slash leadership in which the authority derives from the charisma of the leader, which is pretty much a staple part of what we know the definition to be now. Right. He was also one of the first to make the distinction between churches and sex. A church is a religious group that accepts the social environment in which it exists, whereas a sect is a religious group that rejects it, which I also found very interesting. I honestly didn't know that distinction, I guess, Mm -hmm. till now. (laughs) And if I did, I didn't really put much thought into it. Right. So these ideas have been used to theorize the dynamics of groups that have been labeled cults for decades now. Well-known example, think the People's Temple. They're mm-hmm. pretty much the poster child for Honestly. a traditional cult, if right. you will. What we deem a typical what we call cult. It, yes. yeah. 
So the concept of a cult wasn't actually introduced until 1932 by American sociologist Howard P. Becker. At the time, it was studied solely within the context of religious behavior. Becker's cult referenced um, a small religious groups that lacked organization and emphasized the private nature of personal beliefs. Then in the following decade, we see the Christian counterculture move or counter cult, excuse me, movement emerge. Um, this was a social movement where certain Protestant evangelicals, fundamentalists, and a few other Christian ministries vehemently opposed religious sects and that they considered cults. So anybody that they deemed mm-hmm. not like them, pretty much. That's what made me laugh. I was just like, oh, so they just were like, well, I decided mm-hmm. that just you're now, a cult now. Right now. Yep. Um, during this time, there was an additional emphasis put on cults as deviant religious groups that derived, quote, their inspiration from outside the predominant religious culture, end quote. I just find it so interesting that in the beginning, it literally was just you're different than me. And I don't think I like it. Mm-hmm. I so don't you're care a cult. for it. Right. <laughs> Isn't that how all of this starts? Though? I just. I never am. I'm never not amazed by just how often history repeats itself right with these kinds of things right now fast forward to the early 1970s a secular opposition movement to groups considered cults had taken shape these organizations often acted on behalf of relatives of cult converts so like people who were related to people inside a cult and these relatives did not believe their loved ones could have altered their lives so dramatically by their own free will i feel like they were just hoping that there was an answer more than that they were wanting there to be something else right totally understandable considering how a lot of these groups kind of turn out but this kind of led to a few psychologists and sociologists working in this field during this time, suggesting that brainwashing techniques were being used to maintain you know, the loyalty of the cult's members. And let's be real. This was largely a reaction to the many acts of violence occurring over the course of the decade. And it wasn't really an accusation born out of facts. Again, I feel like that's something you would want to believe because you wouldn't want to think your loved one could be, you know, selling everything they own to live in a barn with this leader or killing people in the name of this person or, you know, Mm -hmm. any of those things. Well, and it was like the tale, you know, the Manson and his family got convicted, I think, in 72, Mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. And so it kind of lines up with a lot of that as well. You know, the belief that cults brainwashed their members became a unifying theme among cult critics. It just was definitively a part of it. It was like canon for cults all of a sudden. In the more extreme corners of the anti-cult movement, techniques like forceful deprogramming of cult members were sometimes practiced. Now, it took until about the late 1980s, but psychologists and other scholars began to abandon theories like brainwashing and mind control. They ultimately... can They recognize that there might be things like manipulation and other tactics along those lines that are used but ultimately they they were like people join these groups of their own free will for different reasons but it's born of their own free mm-hmm. will and so they kind of put that to rest for for the time being it only took almost 20 years yeah, right? no big deal. 
So secular cult opponents belonging to the anti-cult movement usually defined a cult as a group that tends to manipulate, exploit, and control its members. Specific facts in cult behavior were defined to include manipulative and authoritarian mind control over members, communal and totalistic organization, aggressive proselytizing, which is the action of attempting to convert someone from one religion, belief, or opinion to another. I had to Mm. Google it and listen (laughs) to Google. Tell me how to say it. (laughs) Um, Systematic programs of indoctrination and the perpetuation of these beliefs in middle-class communities. However, over the years, we see a rise in the number of secular anti-cult movements popping up, which in turn led to many scholars abandoning the use of the term cult altogether. According to the Oxford Handbook of New Religious Movements, quote, by the end of the decade, the term new religions would virtually replace the term cult to describe all those leftover groups that did not fit easily under the label of church or sect, end quote. Just an FYI, in case you are curious, a new religious movement is a religious community or spiritual group of modern origins, which has a peripheral place within its society's dominant religious culture. They can be novel in origin or part of a wider religion, in which case they are distinct from pre-existing denominations. Which to me, I mean, I think that kind of speaks to the topic of next week. So there was the Davidians and then there was the Branch Davidians, which kind of came from that, which was distinct from its and there like were several branch. stops in the middle. It, mm-hmm. It's a lot. I, the offshoots. I didn't realize there were so many offshoots, I guess. Yeah. I guess it makes sense considering the kind of personalities that are generally found running cults. Mm. And, you know, interestingly enough, there are thousands of cults around the world. And in most English speaking parts, the term cult often carries a derogatory connotation, obviously, or we wouldn't be here right now. When the word is used in this manner, the term is subjective and it's often used as an attack against group with differing doctrines or practices. Religion scholar Megan Goodwin has defined the term cult when it's used by the layperson, which I wasn't sure what layperson meant in this context, which in case you don't either believer or like the parishioner. So she basically said that these people use the term cult as shorthand for a religion I don't like, which I agree with. Considering my own personal background. <laughs> right. But um, it feels like that's where it was in the beginning, does it not? Right. Like the history of the word? Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm gathering from it. So it's like we've come all the way back around the circle <laughs> again. She's like, you guys, I just figured this out. Right. Uh, in the mass media and among average citizens, the word cult has gained an increasingly negative connotation and has become associated with things like kidnapping, brainwashing, psychological and sexual abuse, various other criminal activities, and committing mass suicide. It's really running the gamut uh, here. So basically anything. <laughs> All nefarious activities, check uh. and check. It has been argued many times since the cult debate started in the 1970s that these words or terms should be avoided, generally. Catherine Wessinger, a professor at Loyola University, New Orleans, has stated that the word cult represents just as much prejudice and antagonism as racial slurs or derogatory words for women and homosexuals. I don't buy that, but... Really? Mm. 
I I can see it because I mean I don't know I think that words totally do have the power to take on like those kinds of meanings and I think in the way that we use cult today I mean I definitely use it in a negative connotation to refer to like my past group that I was a part of so I I could see I guess it's one of those things where it depends on the context maybe yeah I don't know I I find that it some it's interesting that somebody is comparing those two kinds of instances if you will I don't know if I'm fully sold. That's fair. You know, that's totally, and it's totally fair to also not be in that camp whatsoever. I'm on the fence. Right. Um, She has argued that it is important for people to become aware of the bigotry conveyed by the word, drawing attention to the way it dehumanizes the group's members and their children. I do agree with that aspect because I think there's, that's the like the shitty part of people not being really educated mm-hmm. on what it takes being in a cult and what it's like being in one and all that kind of stuff. Like these kinds of stories I think are really important because there are children that are just being born into these things and they don't fucking know any better until they start questioning things. And then, you know, or things spiral out of control. Until they don't have a chance to. Right. <laughs> it's just, I think this is one of those things like we've seen so many times where it's just a really terrible, awful onion layer after onion layer Mm -hmm. of of shit. And nothing's black and white. Right. I feel. It just seems like all gray area. Mm -hmm. Because everything, context just matters, I think, so much when it comes to this kind of stuff. Well, that too, yeah. Well, and interestingly, you know, she went on to say that labeling a group as subhuman becomes a justification for violence against it, which we've kind of seen play out in history by labeling a group a call it makes people feel safe because the violence associated with religion is split off from conventional religions and it's kind of projected onto others and imagined to involve only aberrant groups according to Catherine, this fails to consider that child abuse sexual abuse financial extortion and warfare have also been committed by believers of mainstream religions, but the pejorative cult stereotype makes it easier to avoid confronting this uncomfortable fact, which I definitely think is at least a fair argument to yes. make. I'm like, Oh, I, okay. I can see that I, again. It's just the context of it. Right. Cause that's, that's what makes it matter. But the other parts, like the leaders, the people who we ultimately end up talking about, are gross and icky and we don't want to give them kind of that kind of credit. (laughs) It's true. That is, that is accurate. (laughs) So now that we know a bit more about what a cult actually is and where the word came from, let's talk subcategories and go over the different characteristics of each type. We're going to start with what's known as destructive cults. So this term generally refers to groups whose members have through deliberate action, physically injured or killed people often including its own members. Um, per psychologist Michael Langan, the executive director of the anti-cult group International Cultic Studies Association, which I didn't know was a thing. What a title. I know. <laughs> Cultic sounds like Celtic. But, I know. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not. It's it very is different. Not. Vastly different thing um, here. <laughs> right. A destructive cult is a highly manipulative group which exploits and sometimes physically and or psychologically damages members and recruits. You know what this gives me? Fight Club vibes. I could see that. I don't know. It just popped in my head. I'm like, oh, this is like Fight Club. 
Well, you know, like, after that movie came out, there were real fight clubs that popped up all over the place. Mm-hmm. People died because of it. Like, <laughs> people are fucking crazy. I just can't with, we can't have anything nice. No, never, ever. <laughs> um, the Ontario consultants on religious tolerance specifically limit the use of this term to religious groups that, quote, have caused or are liable to cause loss of life among membership of the general public. End quote. Do you think that's because most destructive cults usually have a religious background drive to it? Or do you think that it's just them being stupid and short sighted? I can't tell. I can't, I can't yeah. decide. <laughs> Me neither. Because it's easy to take up the mantle of something that fits what you're trying to accomplish. Right. Whether you believe it or not. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And oh, I think yeah. people like that would specifically do that (laughs) yeah because i just found it i found it very interesting that the distinction has to be made right in the first place rather than just be like oh wow like this group of people regardless of their religious leaning can be really dangerous to everybody else right (laughs) i don't know it's been (laughs) it's been argued that totalitarian systems of governance and an emphasis on money making are key characteristics of a destructive cult fight club and the soap in bringing down corporate america (laughs) i'm on to something here (laughs) it's all part of a deeper plan (laughs) um in the book titled cults and the family the authors define destructive cultism as a sociopathic syndrome whose distinctive qualities include quote Behavioral and personality changes, loss of personal identity, cessation of scholastic activities, estrangement from family, disinterest in society, and pronounced mental control and enslavement by cult leaders, end quote. That's scary stuff. That's a lot, though. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. a lot. In the opinion of sociology professor Benjamin Zablocki of Rutgers University, destructive cult leaders are at an extremely high risk of becoming abusive to their members. This is largely due to the members' undying adulation contributing to, you know, the said leader gaining a lot of power pretty quickly, which in turn causes his corruption and ultimate downfall. The tale is old as time. <laughs> it truly is. <laughs> the most common type of abuse accusation made against this kind of cult specifically tends to be sexual in nature. Additionally, these kinds of groups add a lot of risk to their members when they advise against seeking traditional medical care for any and all procedures or ailments. Some quote unquote religious groups that oppose standard medical care include, but are not limited to, Christian scientists, which, whoa, buddy, that's a whole chestnut to crack open. That's like a, I don't even know, like a glacier-sized chestnut. (laughs) The Scientologists, not surprising. Mm -mm -mm. The Amish. And, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses, which is actually the largest denomination of the entire bunch. I have such a distinct memory of learning about this when I was a child. I remember being... Oh, God, I don't know. No older than 12. And I didn't know about the blood transfusion doctrine within the Jehovah's Witnesses thing. So if you guys aren't familiar, basically, they they claim that it no longer is a thing anymore. But you can't get blood transfusions because of the sacredness of your blood. And Jehovah's Witnesses believe the soul is in the blood and, and just really weird shit that we're eventually going to get into. Mm-hmm. But... 
basically like if it comes down to your life or a blood transfusion, Jehovah's Witnesses are expected to give their life. Like they are expected to not accept that blood transfusion or possibly other life-saving care. And I remember hearing about my mom and grandma talking about it. And I was like appalled. I was so pissed. I remember so clearly looking at my grandmother and going, you're telling me that if you had to choose between dying or a blood transfusion, you would just die. And she looked at me and said, yes. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, this is not okay. I should have known then that was had to have been the foundation starting to crack. (laughs) The only reason I know about that is because Prince, the artist formerly known as Prince, converted to being a Jehovah's Witness and would not have surgery to correct his pain issues. Yep. Because he would have had to have a blood transfusion. Yeah. And wound up overdosing on pain medication because he could not tolerate the pain. And he could have just had a fucking blood transfusion. And And that's even after. Mm -hmm. And that is allegedly after. Well, that's after they allegedly did away with the doctrine. Mm -hmm. Mm. Intriguing. Mm. Kiss my ass, Jehovah's Witnesses. I know. Well, they took prints from us. It's just, it's just, I don't. I don't understand having not been raised with that in my brain as an option, you know what I mean? Well, and even though I, that's one of those things I think that like for, they leave that to you until you're old enough to like have to make that decision for yourself. So as a minor, I never would have been in charge of my own medical decisions. So why would I have needed to know about that? Right. Jehovah's Witnesses are very much like need to know. Like, on a need to know basis, eh? They'll tell a six year old that if your friends or family members aren't Jehovah's Witnesses, they will die in a fiery, terrible Armageddon death. But they won't tell you you can't have this blood save like this life saving procedure. I don't know. I choose blood transfusions and I guess dying in Armageddon. What in I flames. just <laughs> don't understand and not even just within the J dubs, but like any any person, individual who is like, no, thank you. Like I get it. Like doctors aren't infallible, but not ever trusting any kind of medical procedure, just solely relying on just like prayer or whatever it is that you do. That's what the Christian scientists do. They literally will will like, no, they'll pray it away. And I'm not knocking anybody who utilizes that as, you know, a way to get things done in your life. By all means, do whatever you got to do and live your life. But like, in, you're going to pray a heart attack away as they're actively having one in the bed. Like, I don't know. Make it make sense. It doesn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> it does not. Mm-mm. Maybe before there were any sort of leaps in medical sciences. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's understandable. Present day. What's your excuse now? There Girl. is not one. Oof. Um, there have been researchers that criticize the term destructive cult writing that it is used to describe groups which are not necessarily harmful in nature to themselves or others. One of those people specifically is author John A. Saliba. In his book, Understanding New Religious Movements, he claims the term is overgeneralized. He looks to groups like the People's Temple as the paradigm of a destructive cult. According to him, when people use the term to describe another group of people, it's implied that the latter will just commit mass suicide. Like, that's what they think the end game is. I think it's not always the case. Right. But isn't that so fascinating? Because he makes a really good point, because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who just hear the word call and immediately. I mean, that's what the whole drink the Kool-Aid joke is. Mm -hmm. 
If you guys aren't familiar with the People's Temple, then go back and listen to our Jonestown episodes because holy shit, that was a lot. Again, I don't get it. That one was terrifying. That one was absolutely terrifying. Not only did he have charm and charisma, but he also had sheer brute force. (laughs) So, yeah, 100%. I just, I agree with a lot of people who think that it's, ultimately not in our best interest to overgeneralize terms or overuse them if you will like look at the term gaslighting you say something because you think something's correct but you're just uninformed they're like well why are you gaslighting me into believing this like it's just completely misused right same with thing with like the word triggering and now boundaries like all these like words that have actual meanings get twisted and turned into something completely different so i don't disagree with these people but what else are we supposed to do well yeah actions speak louder than words i mean really (laughs) and patterns speak Mm -hmm. louder than words ultimately i think we just need to find a different name for non-nefarious groups and go from there i Mm -hmm. think that would be easier right start at that point (laughs) so uh we're gonna next talk about doomsday cults this is actually gonna be uh the, the topic of our next episode, the Branch Davidians, falls under this umbrella, as does the Manson family, which we covered previously. Mm-hmm. So a doomsday cult is an expression that's used to describe groups that believe in a apocalypticism. That's a I didn't know that was a word actually <laughs> till I typed it and I was like, huh. Okay. I can only think of the one episode of RuPaul where somebody was like apocalyptic or something. I don't know. It fucks me up. I can't say the word apocalypse correctly really anymore. Either way, this is a doctrine concerning an imminent end of the world and an ensuing general resurrection and final judgment that's going to take place. Millenarianism is the doctrine of or belief in a future thousand year age of blessedness beginning with or culminating in the second coming of Christ. So it's central to the teachings of groups such as the Plymouth Brethren, Ad- Adventists, Mormons, and you guessed it, Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's. You guys, I was part of a doomsday call at once upon a time. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. It was a wild ride. Uh, this term is also often used to describe both groups that predict da- disaster and groups that attempt to bring it about themselves. So, like, for example, Joe's Witnesses speak of an Armageddon and a thousand year reign and all of the things, whereas Manson was trying to spur on the Create end of the, the race world. War, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in the 1950s, American social psychologist Leo Festinger and his colleagues observed members of a small UFO religion called the Seekers for several months. You guys, these guys. I know. I just did some light surface researching. We're going to have to crazy bananas go into them a little deeper someday, but we've got Mm. a little a little taste for you. So they were also known as the Brotherhood of the Seven Rays. They were a group of rapturists led by Dorothy Martin, who believed that a UFO would save them from a catastrophe set to happen on December 21st, 1954. They are believed to be the earliest UFO based religion. I appreciate a strict schedule. Mm-hmm. For my apocalypse. So thank you. Dorothy. It's true. Specific dates and all that. Mm-hmm. It's helpful. So Martin told her followers that the U.S. was going to be destroyed by a massive earthquake or perhaps a huge tidal wave on a specific date. 
She allegedly received this message telepathically from aliens that she referred to as the Guardians. According to Martin, the Guardians would save the Believers from the destruction by flying saucers that would take everyone to the home planet of Calarian. Hmm. Interesting. So this author, Festinger, witnessed firsthand what happened before and after a failed prophecy from their charismatic leader. Um, I, in my research, I found many people, many of the followers did abandon the belief, but those who didn't claim that their faith had saved the world from the disaster. Right. Rather than vice versa. There's That's the thing about these kinds of leaders in groups like this is that there's always an answer. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, well, it just wasn't time yet. Our belief is what made the earth safe. So it's going to be next well, time. I heard she moved the date back to Christmas. And then when it still didn't happen, she was like, oh, well, we must have saved the world with our belief. Right. So, <laughs> okay. Whew. So he published, <laughs> he and his co-authors published this work in the book titled When Prophecy Fails, A Social and Psychological Study of a Modern Group that Predicted the Destruction of the World. Longest book title ever. <laughs> yeah, but that's going on the book list it for sure. It makes me think of that Parks and Rec episode where the guy's like, oh, so the world's going to end on December oh, yeah. 12th. And all they do is have a party in the they park. And Ron, makes Ron them Swanson flutes. sells them wooden flutes. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and he's like, well, it's got to be next year, right? What's it looking like on May 12th? <laughs> 100%. I mean, hey, if it's not hurting anybody... I don't care. If you want to believe that aliens are going to come take you off in a spaceship boot, cool. They didn't drink any Kool-Aid or do anything crazy, though. No, they were though. literally they were just, just like, standing oh, well, in a backyard I guess looking we up saved to the, the sky. World, then. Okay, see you later. Bye. I just... Can you imagine... <laughs> No. I picture Dar- Dorothy Martin to be somebody who's aware of the fact that she's scamming everybody, and I just picture her being like, oh, shit. I don't think I didn't come up with an answer for this. Well, it's got to be Christmas or then, right? being fully prepared for what she was going to say next. I don't, I don't know. Or, I don't know. To be a fly on the wall in that if situation. Only. In the late 1980s, doomsday cults were a major topic of news reports with some reporters and commentators considering them a serious threat to society. And I can see why these people are scary, especially when they want to hurt themselves and take other people along with right. them. A 1997 psychological study conducted by Festinger and a few <clears throat> and a few other colleagues found that people turned into a cataclysmic worldview after they had repeatedly failed to find meaning in mainstream movements. Why else do people join groups? They want to have a sense of community or belonging or whatever you're missing that you're seeking, mm-hmm. I'm sure. People tend to try and find meaning in global events such as the turn of the millennium, for example, when many predicted that it was supposed to prophetically mark the end of an age and thus the end of the world. I mean, remember, none of the computers were going to work in 2000. I, again, Uh. was young and didn't know any better than what I was being told on the limited news sources that we watched. And I was like, oh, no, the computer is going to like blow up. So I went and checked on it after it turned Mm -hmm. midnight on that New Year's Eve. Yeah, we were all we all stayed up and we Mm -hmm. were like, oh, just a normal New Year's Eve. I ran into my grandma's home office and I was like, everything's fine. She's like, well, yeah, of course, everything's fine. I'm like, well, you told me. Right. I thought everything was going to go to hell in a handbasket here. And it's just there's so many examples. Another really uh, popular one was when the ancient Mayan Mayan calendar ended at the year 2012. 
mm-hmm. and everybody assumed that that meant the end of the world and people were like there's going to be just catastrophic disasters left right and sideways it's going to take out the whole world all at once nothing happened i mean there was the normal amount of disasters right. i feel but not that we're not staring down a barrel of like environmental disasters but it's not coming that, because of the mayan calendar it's coming because we're killing we're the earth, stupid right? again we can't have nice things <laughs> honestly so this one is Japanese, so bear with me. Ayam Shinrikyo. I think that was good. It was founded by Shoko Ashihara, who um, this was a man who declared himself not only to be Christ, um, but he was also Japan's only fully enlightened master and the Lamb of God, all rolled up in a little burrito. Very busy guy. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be everything to everyone. All Christ, at once. though. I mean, that's a big pair of balls that you've got if you're see, calling that's some yourself big brass ones there. Jesus Christ Himself. <laughs> um, so his purported mission was to take upon himself the sins of the world and to spread the um, word salvation. His message was that humanity would end, except for the elite few that joined him. Always, Asha, oh, I know it. Never fails. <laughs> Ashihara described the final conflict culminating in a nuclear Armageddon scheduled to take place specifically in 1997. The violence that this group committed in the name of survival and prophecy fulfillment was bananas. Was I, you're going to remember crazy some of this. Mm-hmm. Um, we highlighted, if you will, one or two. <laughs> um, in 1990, some of this group's members murdered the family of a lawyer who just so happened to have been involved in a legal act- action against the group. Mm. That, if that's not shady business. That has nothing to do with Armageddon or anything, but right. all right. <laughs> um, in 1995, this one specifically, I recall, um, members of this cult murdered several people during a sarin attack on the tokyo subway that's when they let the gas go Mm -hmm. well because the subways in tokyo are jam-packed full of people well and what do you do you're just a sitting duck if Mm -hmm. somebody decides to do that i know we've watched the criminal minds episode (laughs) i know how it works how it goes (laughs) um a lot of scholars were surprised by the group's ability to recruit educated young people It has been theorized that the cause of this was feelings of social alienation that made the young Japanese vulnerable to mind control techniques, which I could see. Well, that's a pretty common theme, I feel, among these groups that we're talking about, especially the next one that we're going to get into. I mean, kids, I mean, we've said it before, your brain isn't even fully finished developing until you're in your mid-20s. Right. And so anybody, I feel like from that, like 12 years old, to that point in your life is just right for the picking well and honestly that's good business for these charismatic leaders Mm -hmm. because young impressionable people who don't really know themselves yet but they're educated enough to be of assistance to you like tell me that's not targeted you know that kid will become everything you want out of a cult member Right. Because they will completely make the group their identity, which is ultimately what they want. Ugh, that's so sad and sinister. Well, it's so crazy. And we you see that a lot in the next kind of group because we're going to be talking about political cults because, yes, bum, bum. it's very much a thing. We're going to be talking about it in, like I said, just a very broad general sense because I find it very interesting, especially considering not just our our country's politics situation right now, but. A lot of countries are going through very similar issues. There's one specifically in Britain that a famous actress backed. 
Yeah. And I was like, holy cow. It's super wild. And it just goes to show that anybody, it, cults is like a, it's a, oh, no discrimination, right? Mostly. Yeah. <laughs> Unless that's their vibe. But Which for the most part, they're like, if you are able to pay me money or give me loyalty or X, Y, Z, like you are welcome and they're going to make you feel so special. Mm-hmm. So like many of the cults we've already discussed, political cults do not have their members' best interests in heart. It's usually the top dogs of a situation like this that are fighting for their own interests. A political cult's primary concern lies in political action and ideology specifically. These types of groups usually are advocating for far right or far left agendas are usually the extreme of either side. Right. And over the years, they've received some serious attention from journalists and scholars. There's a really great article on medium.com that kind of lays out some of the behavior associated with political cults specifically. And I think that you'll find that this is something that we've read about in other countries happening. We are seeing this play out a lot in real life right now. Mm-hmm. I was very fascinated. So the first one, you find a sense of purpose in embracing a totalistic ideology that sees itself in intractable opposition with the evil other. This can occur even with the best intentioned group. Sometimes it's just kind of a uh, like a side effect, if mm-hmm. you will. It's not necessarily what their main goal is. Either way, cult leaders tend to encourage an us versus them mentality, which is when things can get really dangerous. Yikes. Um, So in groups like this, you strive for the creation or recreation of a utopian society. And I find that utopian society is often one-sided. It's only utopian. For you. For that group of people. For that group of beliefs, Mm. not for everybody. Isn't utopia... A perfect world for everyone? I believe so. Okay, then that's not a utopia. <laughs> Just putting that out there. They tried it. They tested it out. Uh, one of the third kind of, I guess you could say, ways to define it. Your views in this group are defined and enforced by a select cadre of thinkers, leaders, and co-believers. This is part of what makes social media platforms so dangerous right now. It's Mm. far too easy to put yourself in an echo chamber of reinforcing beliefs across several different sites. And it's not even anything you're doing specifically. If you just happen to find content that you like and you watch it. I mean, you guys know how the algorithm works. We don't, but <laughs> I, I haven't quite figured it out yet for Instagram. So if you have tips, let, right, your girl let know. know. I don't want to perpetuate this kind of stuff. I don't want any of that. I just want to put our drink videos out there, <laughs> but I could see how that it's like you, you look up one thing and next thing you know, that's all you're seeing is different versions of that thing. Well, and you're not really on Reddit all like that, but Reddit, I think is, one of the worst, probably that on Facebook, because Reddit, you literally search for communities that you are seeking out. Oh, yeah. So if you're already in that mindset of one of the extremes, you're going to be bombarded with like minded individuals. And I just think that that doesn't leave a lot of room for critical thinking, for forming your own opinion. Like I said, both sides of any political groups that this can fit no matter which one you're talking about. Right. Absolutely. Um, another, you regard freedom of expression as essential for your opinions, but it's problematic for others. 
very much I can say whatever I want, but you can't hurt my feelings. Also, in political cults, you often will consider the mere presence of someone who disagrees with you as threatening or harmful to the community. You see that a lot in uh, like Scientology as well. Essentially, there's just a refusal to tolerate even the slightest deviation from what's considered your normal. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, that's my two cents. That's crazy. <laughs> that one's crazy. I mean, they're all. Mm-hmm. Um, number six, you seek un- unan- unanimous, basically, opinion and routinely dismiss alternative views as displays of disloyalty or fragility. Isn't that, cr- isn't that also crazy? Yes. I'm just, like, oh, that one's nuts. And then I get to the next one. I'm like, OK, that one's kind of nuts, too. But I mean, and I think the thing that's really wild to me is that I think every person is guilty of displaying one of these. Because, like, I mean, I've definitely been guilty of, like, I don't want to talk to anybody. If you don't like me, then I don't want you. <laughs> you know, we've all been there. Right. We've no, all for been sure. there. But I think in this kind of cult specifically, it's the... It's all of them, all of these little things being part of one group. Yes. It's the compound of all of them right. that makes it all of it what it into is. one big group. Mm-hmm. So another um, tenant, I guess you can say, you prefer to shape others in your own ideological image than encouraging them to think for themselves. And I feel like that's a really big one mm-hmm. with cults in general, but I can definitely see it in here. You got to always be fighting for the greater good, but that's just what your leader says it is right <laughs> um you feel compelled to confess past ideological sins and demand similar confessions from others that one i found really odd i was reading it and i didn't fully understand it basically it was like you used to think one way and then you're ashamed of it because you now think the other way or like tell me that time you doubted what yes. he says was my take on it Ooh, that's very, that's very much a thing in uh, Scientology. Like, tell me. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your darkness. And then they can t- tell me about your darkness. <laughs> and then the last one on the list is that you tend to see individuals as not much more than dualistic manifestations of good or evil. Because as we all know, no, there is no such thing as black and white. There is no just good or just evil. Not a lot at the time anyways. Right. It's not good. Not good, Lynn. No, we don't like it. (laughs) Um, So here are some examples of political cults. Uh, The first one being the LaRouche movement. This is, was a political and cultural network promoting the late Lyndon LaRouche and his ideas. The movement originated within the radical left in the 1960s. And over the next two decades, many Democratic candidates actually ran on the LaRouche platform. Sometime in the mid-1970s, the network began to adopt viewpoints and stances of the far right. During its peak, the movement developed private intelligence agencies and contracts with foreign governments. That's crazy. In 1988, LaRouche and 25 associates of his were convicted on fraud charges related to fundraising. What? You're telling me everything wasn't all on the up and up, Brie? I'm so surprised. I am stunned. Stunned. I'm just stunned. (laughs) Some of the main goals of this movement 
are as follows. I just picked a couple that I found that kind of, I think, all encompassed their platforms. They made me giggle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So one of them was the restoration of the Glass-Steagall Act, which will essentially separate commercial banking from speculative investment banking. I don't fully understand how or why this works this way, but basically it's going to, it's an act that protects the former and it does not bail out the latter. So it's setting people up to not setting businesses up to fail if they want and they'll get bailed out, but only certain things. Essentially. Yeah. I don't understand enough about banking. Right. It just sounds. It's skeezy. Mm-hmm. Sketchy. This next one, I find an interesting concept and I feel like it's just not possible, but maybe I'm wrong. The Eurasian land bridge. You guys, These people were running on a platform where they wanted to build a massive high-speed maglev railway railway to span continents, which will in turn reinvigorate industry and commerce. I like the sound of it because I like road trips. Yeah, but isn't that what like boats and planes are for? (laughs) It would take like 42 days days. (laughs) to get anywhere. How would you stop? How would you stop over the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? Are we making like resorts floating in the air? Don't give them any ideas, Suze. I mean, I'd be down, but like, what? I'd try it out. That's bananas, <laughs> again. And my the last one I picked is my favorite by far. They, uh, the colonization of Mars, just kind of as a general idea. I don't, again. What? Who knows? Maybe, but mm, no thanks. I just found it interesting that like these were the things. This was... And people were like, hell yeah. And that's the thing, right? <laughs> what makes it a political cult is that there are people that are so unbelievable unbelievably dedicated to this platform specifically that how over how many decades right so many people ran while this man tried to run for president and failed several many times like obviously nothing something here isn't the math's not math it's not adding (laughs) up yes um this one is interesting the unification church oh man (laughs) they were founded by north korean born sun myung moon this church holds a strong anti-communist position. Soon after its founding, the unification movement began supporting anti-communist organizations, including the World League of Freedom and Democracy and the Korean Culture and Freedom Foundation. Uh, that is an international public diplomacy organization which sponsored Radio Free Asia, in case you were wondering. Mm-hmm. Um, disciples were called Moonies. I love it. It just made me laugh. Um, They would isolate new recruits and shower them with attention, also known as love bombing them, Mm. which I just found to be a really interesting factoid because what? Being love bomb man is a wild ride. I I would be like, no, thank you. (laughs) Well, the way that people do it, it's just they give it to you and then they take it away so abruptly. So it leaves you off like off balance. Like off kilter. And mm-hmm. that's the whole point of it, right? To mm-hmm. get you off of your. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Center, I feel like, if you will. Yeah. And I can't speak in this sense, but I feel like in a relationship sense, for example, like this is really big with narcissists. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is to keep you wanting to like come back and keep you guessing, like, why did they take the love away from me? Why? What do I need to do to earn that back or get them to love me again? It's all really fucked up. I don't care for it. No, (laughs) no, it's not fun. Don't like it. 
Zero out of 10. Would not recommend. So the unification movement was criticized by both the mainstream media and the alternative press for its anti-communist activism, which many said could lead to World War III and a nuclear holocaust. So some of the examples of their activities here are as follows. Uh, So in 1974, the Unification Church supported Republican President Richard Nixon and rallied in his favor after the Watergate scandal, Mm. with Nixon eventually thanking them personally for it. Um, In 1975, Moon spoke at a government-sponsored rally against potential North Korean military aggression on Yaudui? I don't know how to say it. It's Y-E-O. U-I-D-O Island in Seoul to an audience of around 1 million people. So there were 1 million people listening to this message. Wild. Just in person, not even over the radio waves and through print and all that. Right. Um, The Unification Church also owns several news outlets, including the Washington Times, Insight on the News, United Press International, and the News World Communications Network. I wanted to make sure we added that last part because some of those publishers are still publishing information I was that's like, widely consumed by people. Intriguing. You know, mm-hmm. everything can be found on the interwebs now. So it's like it's right. even more far reaching than it previously was. Mm-hmm. So be mindful. Just always make sure you guys are checking your sources. At least like 12 times. Checking <laughs> everything. Uh, you know, I'm going to have to find it the website again but i follow this one content creator on youtube legia miller she's a lawyer she's fantastic but she there's a website that she it might be an app something that shows you like what sources are right-leaning what sources are left-leaning what they're each saying about a topic and then the ones that are tend to be more unbiased and what they're saying about the topic so you can kind of like see across all platforms and I'm going to have to find out what it is. It was really interesting because I think it would be uh, just kind of fun to I see what the difference is. I tend to use like 25 sources on mm-hmm. any given topic. For this one, though, you could tell, especially yes. when we get into part three, which way everybody was leaning. Oh, it was very distinct. 100%. <laughs> I, and I, you know, I was like, wow, they're very in favor of X versus Y, you know what I mean? It's a very it was, polarizing topic, which sure. I think is going to be really interesting to talk talk about because I don't personally know a lot about it. I didn't. I learned a lot. My knowledge and information about cults truly only comes from my own experience and what I've learned about since kind of coming out of that situation. So to me, all of this is just suit. Like, obviously, we all know Manson and we all know Jim Jones, but like outside of that, it it was really interesting to di- dig into all this kind of stuff. Well, I didn't realize cult had such a varied and illustrious background, just yeah. as a general <laughs> term, you mm-hmm. know. So language is weird, like that. It is. It's so interesting. It you can. I mean, slang is a perfect example of it. Just how people can take a random word like people i think of the what they're saying like if you're capping you're lying like that's what sense does that make None. but that's the whole thing i don't know right it's what the kids say <laughs> i'm too old for that now the 19 year olds <laughs> i work with keep me young <laughs> so in addition to the what the type of cults we've already mentioned there's also racist cults think the kkk terrorist cults think al-qaeda and sex cults think nexium 
These will all be discussed more in depth at a later date. I didn't want to drag this on and on and on forever. Because honestly, we could be here for 47 parts if we really wanted mm-hmm. to be, truly. We'll probably we'll likely save those ones for kind of another deep dive into cults a little bit later down the road. But for now, we are going to discuss one last one. And uh, we're going to dive into polygamous cults. Ugh. I just find it very interesting. And a lot of I we also picked one specific that kind of go into the topics we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. So that's another reason why these specific subcategories were chosen. So polygamous cults teach and practice polygamy, obviously. And in case you aren't sure what that is, it's a marriage between more than two people, most often polygyny, which is when one man has multiple wives which i didn't actually know there was a distinction distinction. Mm -hmm. yes i was unfamiliar with that oh yeah it has been estimated that there are around fifty thousand members of polygamous cults in north america alone often polygamous cults are viewed negatively by both legal authorities and mainstream society people aren't really down with a lot of that and this view sometimes includes negative perceptions of related mainstream denominations because of their perceived links to possible domestic violence and child abuse and so on and so forth. Which, I mean, in some instances is warranted. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like I don't really have a problem with it as long as everybody is consenting adults. If that's how you want to live your life, by all means far too jealous and i also am far too lazy to want to have any more than just one partner also that's a lot of work it's kind of illegal right so there's that (laughs) i just i mean like i don't i don't know it's the marrying part if you want to have multiple partners whatever blows your hair back but like the marrying of all the wives like what why it's just it's just an interesting thing that i don't think i will fully ever understand no but i did find this next part really really interesting about the history of it It is intriguing. Mm -hmm. So from the 1830s to 1904, members of Mormonism's largest denomination, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, i.e. the LDS Church, performed polygamous marriages. They were called plural marriages by the church at that time. Which is just what an interesting distinction. Now, in 1890, the president of the LDS Church, Wilford Woodruff, issued a public manifesto announcing the cessation of new plural marriages. So basically, you can't do them anymore. But the ones that already happened is cool. It's fine. <laughs> Your grandfather did. Anti-Mormon sentiment waned, as did opposition to statehood for Utah, because you guys, they literally were not allowing Utah to become a state because of the Mormons being polygamous. <laughs> I, when I read that part in her research, I was like, I don't remember learning about this in school. And I sure did. Teach it in school, I sure did why. Google it. I was like, you've got, <laughs> they were like, fuck you, Utah. No. Well, and back then <laughs> no, the United you. States would take it if they wanted it forcibly or otherwise right. for the fact that, that they, said, they were like, no, thanks. No, like, sir. They we'll must have thought it was real fucked up. Hard pass on that. Thank well, you, just though. think of all the... I mean, the pearl clutching that was occurring probably in the late 1800s. That was like probably completely unheard of to anybody outside of Mormonism. right? Well, especially because, I mean, I know from one of the cases that's most near and dear to my heart is the disappearance of Susan Powell. And that is centered around Mormons and took place in Utah and in that general area. And so I just found it 
so funny for some reason that I'm like, oh shit, like the whole stereotype of Utah and Mormonism and shit, like it really exists for a reason, guys. (laughs) And then, um, because of all this shenanigans, they had to hold hearings. They're called the Smoot hearings in 1904. And this basically documented that members of the LDS church were still in fact performing new polygamous marriages, despite them kind of publicly saying that wasn't a thing anymore, which spurred the church to issue a second manifesto again, claiming that it had ceased its practice. It's probably like guys stop it trying to become a state. Can you just (laughs) spray the cat with the water bottle? Knock it off. Yeah. Down. Get down. (laughs) So by 1910, the LDS church excommunicated those who entered or performed performed new polygamous marriages. Enforcement of the 1890 manifesto caused various splinter groups to leave the LDS church to continue the practice of religious polygamy. I like how that's the hill they're going to die on. They're like, absolutely not. This take is away my wives. Unacceptable. Plural. Um, such groups are known as Mormon fundamentalists. For example, the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is often described as a polygamous cult. It's such a long name. I know. And it's so close to the original the, group mm-hmm. that it's like, wait, did I read that correctly? Yes, because fundamentalist is in it. Which is, I feel like, probably a big part of why they do it. It's if that's the dif- that's the difference. Like they're like, we want to continue getting married in plurals and they're not letting us anymore. So that's the sole difference between well, denominations. One of, one of what that's what the church was built on, Brie, originally. That's why we're going Sometimes back to the basics. Sometimes these things need to change or I'm not be done saying, in the first place. Know. It's fucking wild. <laughs> the thing that people can and will get away with under the name of religion is fucking insane. Well, and like, like you said, that's what they're choosing to like leave their religion for and create a whole new one is <laughs> lack of multiple wives. Like what? I don't get it. I just don't. I don't know. If you guys have more insight than me, please let me yeah, know. Yeah, if you just I happen just to be a Mormon understand. out there, then tell me how this works. Practicing polygamy. Yeah. Let me, let me know. I, mean, I have like, some questions. Like, I can definitely, like, I logically understand, like, polyamorous relationships. I don't judge anybody who is in them. If that's no, what works sure. best for you, if by all means. that's what about. But I don't know. There's something about the religious context to me that makes it gross. Right. That could be my own bias, though, against a lot religion of cult- in general. A lot so. of these groups take it to mean like, well, God said I should have more than one Maybe wife. Maybe that's so. what skeeves me out. I'm, I'm not entirely. Either way. God did not tell you that. It makes me feel real icky. Yes. <laughs> so why do people join cults in the first place? Right. We just spent all this time talking about how terrible they are. So why start? What if you're not born into it? Exactly. You know? And how do you know when you're in one? So we're going to start with the first question. Number one, you don't know that you're joining a cult. Most people don't recognize that the group they're joining is considered a cult. They don't generally advertise that on their flyers. It's true. <laughs> the kind of individual that is more likely to be attracted to a cult may have certain vulner- vulnerabilities that make them more susceptible to joining. Like I was telling Sue's before we started recording Jehovah's Witnesses, will often read obituaries and purposely seek out people who just lost somebody to then go and be like, hey, here's all these things. That's fucking Doesn't it sound great, man? That's wild. You are li- that, like you are told to do these kinds of things. Pick people at the lowest mm-hmm. of the lows. 
ambitious. Mm-hmm. Well, and it fits right in with what cults do. They prey on the vulnerable. Right. Ultimately. I mean, for sure. Look at Charles Manson. Exactly. So the person that may or may not be joining this cult has unresolved insecurities or traumas. A study found that many cults members experience attachment insecurity prior to joining a cult. Their insecurity may drive them towards a group that promises acceptance. Once they've joined, the individual is usually distanced from outside influences. This can include family, friends, work, etc., etc., etc. This causes the person to become dependent on being in the group and develop suspicions of anyone outside. This tactic also ensures that leaving the group would prove too difficult after being separated from the outside world and pretty much anyone and everyone you care about for however long, right. weeks, months, years, decades. The longer it is, the, the harder, harder it is. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, this is part of why some people suspect that cult members are brainwashed. Uh, there is some science behind this idea as members are often told they're being persecuted by people outside of the group. And if you're not having any interactions with anybody outside of the group, it's easy to take that at face value mm-hmm. and accept it as truth. Especially when it's being repeated to you over on a regular basis. I feel mm-hmm. like that was something that we saw a lot in the Jim Jones situation and with Manson, Manson constantly told his followers how the end of the world was near and terrible, terrible things were going to happen. And same thing with Jim Jones. Mm -hmm. So another reason why people join cults is that they're just flat out manipulated, just completely manipulated into joining cult leaders often promise to reward members in some way after joining. They are sold They are given a sales pitch to end all sales pitches and they will do anything they can to talk you into wanting to dedicate your life to this in some kind of way. You know, they might tell the individual that they'll move up the ranks within the cult kind of quick or that something really special is going to happen to their group and only their group. It's that exclusivity, I think, too. Yes. Mm -hmm. That adds like a mystery, mystery to it. Many people believe that a lot of people in this kind of situation are more victims rather than members because they're often subjected to psychological manipulation tactics that lure them into making unhealthy decisions for themselves. Like, give me all your money, all your possessions, your wife, your kids, your whatever, you know. Mm, yep. And you're devoted it, to this life mm-hmm. now. Um, a reason people might stay in a call is because getting out is just really difficult. There are some members who just don't have any contact with people from the outside world whatsoever. So it can be nearly impossible, if not completely impossible, to get help. In many instances, the individuals don't have the financial resources because they've given it all up or been it's been taken away from them. They've been bamboozled. Right. Um, so they can't find a new place to go or a way to get out. Others are just too scared flat out too scared to Mm -hmm. even try a lot of times well a lot of times in these situations you're threatened i i'm i'm pretty sure i've heard leah remini say that she was monitored when she would use computers and she was threatened if she went on the set of king of queens and said this that and the third like they i mean even like i mentioned earlier Jehovah's Witnesses telling six-year-olds, like, your friends are going to die if they don't become Jehovah's Witnesses. Like, even that is a manipulation technique because you're traumatizing a six-year-old. I didn't want to make any friends. Literally walking into kindergarten being like, everybody's going to die because I know something that they don't know. Oh, jeez. But then, like, being treated as if 
my family is crazy, which I understand now why <laughs> like looking back kids' on it. parents didn't want them to play with me. But, <laughs> you know. At the time, it probably did not feel wonderful. Right. Well, because they literally nickname like, it's called the truth. Like, everybody calls it the truth within the organization. And, like, it's part of the indoctrination. It's wild. It's fucking wild. So we're going to take a quick minute before we skedaddle today to talk about potential signs that you're in a cult because these things can be really dangerous and situations can escalate. And while it can sneak up on you, I feel (laughs) even with the best intentions in the world. And even if it's not dangerous for you, it could be dangerous for a loved one. Unfortunately, there's a lot of child abuse that takes place in organizations like the one I grew up in. And because a lot of times they're told to keep everything hush hush. You don't go to authorities. You don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important that we educate ourselves to know what to look for. Now, according to the Call Education Institute, there are specific warning signs that you can be on the lookout for within your group. So one of them being the absolute authoritarianism. Authoritarianism? I was like, there's just there's too, too many, many T's and I's and... Without accountability. So basically, they're in charge of everything. What they say goes, but if something goes wrong, they're not going to take any accountability right. for it. There's also zero tolerance for any criticism or any questions. There's a lack of meaning, meaningful financial disclosure regarding budget or how they spend the money they're taking from you. Unreasonable fears about the outside world that often involve evil conspiracies and persecutions. A belief that former followers are always wrong for leaving and that there's never a legitimate reason for anyone else to leave, which is wrong, by the way. Right. Incorrect. In case you were curious. <laughs> um, abuse of members is a big one, and this can be any form of abuse it's not just physical or sexual it can be the mental abuse a combination emotional any yes any and all (laughs) records books articles or programs documenting the abuses of the leader or group are hidden away and for only a few select to see followers feeling that they are never able to be quote-unquote good enough that one hits hard that was a big part of my struggle towards the end there that's so sad it 19 years old and i'm like fucking way to grow up it's fucking (laughs) i can't wait until we have the we're gonna have to do the episode sooner or later i think i'm finally at a place where i can like talk about it without kind of being triggered by my own experiences Mm -hmm. because let me tell you guys it was a fucking wild experience to come out of that but all of these are so true but they're also so innocuous on their own. Like not so much abusive members, but like not sharing the budget. That well, why in- would you need to know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, another big glaring red flag in this is the belief that the leader is right at all times, no matter what. In addition, a belief that the leader is the exclusive means of knowing truth, quote unquote, or giving validation. So all of these are little things. Sometimes they can just be in the form of conversations, overt and obvious ways of like love bombing, like we talked about. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to this and it can get really scary really fast, depending on the situation. So if you or someone you know is part of a group like this or is considering joining a group like this or perhaps has just left one, 
The Call Education Institute is an amazing resource and it's a really great first stop to direct them to. We're going to make sure it's linked. Also, if you are savvy with Reddit, one that really helped me there's actually a subreddit called cult survivors and that is just a lot of people who share their experiences and we just it's kind of a support system i never posted i don't really i don't engage a lot on reddit i'm mostly there to read but that in and of itself was really helpful there was also one called xjw which is obviously tailored specifically to like what that group does so there's resources out there mm-hmm and also, it's kind of like when your friend is in an abusive relationship, you need to be able to maintain distance for your own safety, but keep an eye on them. Right. Not everything is always as it seems with this kind of stuff. Correct. There's a lot happening under the surface. And it can shift from one thing to another pretty quickly. So I feel. quickly. So, so quickly. So, yeah. So that is our uh, little cult in a <laughs> nutshell. Um we wanted to have a really good understanding of what we were dealing with while we dive into the next couple of episodes. So, and also if you guys have any other questions or anything about my own personal experience that if I've intrigued you, please don't hesitate to reach out to us mm -hmm. via the social medias. You guys should be following them because why not? We're awesome. You want to check out all of the fun stuff we have on there. So where are we at? You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at crime and spirits pod. On TikTok, we're at Crime and Spirits Podcast. Any of those locations is where you'll find ingredients, recipes, fun videos, stupid memes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Fun stuff we do as normal people that are not podcasters. <laughs> um, if you'd like to follow us personally, you can find us each on Instagram. I am at Suze, not Susan. And I am at Brie underscore not the cheese. If you are into what we're doing over here, we'd really appreciate it if you just took two minutes out of your day to go leave us a rating and or review. It really helps us get out there more. And it's really just fun to see what you guys think about what we're doing. It is pretty darn heartwarming when we yeah. get a nice little message or five stars. Uh, we appreciate it, it so much. It really, really does. Uh, if there is a case or a cocktail or a liquor or literally anything that you want us to check out, dive into for you, you can shoot us an email at crimeandspiritspodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you are interested in becoming a monthly supporter of our podcast, there is a link for that in the show notes. Feel free to smash that link. Smash that link. Ooh. And as is tradition, we have to have a funny joke to shake off the heebie-jeebies. Yes. You know, I'll need it after today, next week, and the week after that. Pretty much every week. <laughs> All the time. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> okay. So why is it that if you donate a kidney, people love you? But if you donate five kidneys, they call the police. <laughs> I thought it was appropriate. I like it. Considering what we're talking about. <laughs> Where'd you get them kidneys from, girl? Well, and then the top comment on the joke was, it's like donating blood. They always ask those stupid questions. Whose blood is it? Why is it in a bucket? Oh, no. <laughs> that's a good comment. It made me think of the, there's an Always Sunny episode where they're trying to figure out if Frank is Charlie's dad or not. Oh. So they have a blood bucket, but there's like not just Frank's blood in it. It's a whole thing. I it's feel a like good I've one. seen that it's one. A, I haven't watched classic. it in many years. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that's going to be it for us. We're going to skedaddle. It's a rainy night here in our neck of the woods. So we're going to go eat some pizza and hang out. Yeah. You should probably do the same. Just sit tight wherever you're at. If you're sipping along, please just stay safe. We don't condone drinking and driving. We just want to have a good time and, uh, you know, keep everybody in one piece. Yeah. 
So stay home, order some food, drink a glass of water or five, and uh, just have a really good day. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.